going to consider this week and next week Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 page 1179 1179 your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness Richard will you help with that wherever you're sitting please no the other Richard you want to get back to this where, where is Richard uh, no dear uh, okay we are having difficulty with our microphones we'll go back to this one okay Okay. Is that all right now? All right. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is one of the greatest and one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament. It's here in our series on Philippians. And you might be interested to know, having just sung Graham Kendrick's great song, Meekness and Majesty, that these words also began life as a hymn. It's more obvious in Greek than in English. And it's remarkable and very encouraging to think that the hymns of the first century Christians had so much good theology in them. They didn't just sing little choruses and ditties. No doubt there's a place for the snowdrop as well as the orchid. But they sang also these great songs that equal anything in the book of Psalms. And here's an example of what was taught and what the early Christians understood. And we're going to try to catch them up uh, this morning as we go back to this, uh, this song, which might have been this hymn, which might have been composed or written by the Apostle Paul or by a sort of first century Graham Kendrick, I don't know. But we must understand that as we learn the doctrine this morning, we are not learning some dry, abstract philosophy. We are speaking about the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're speaking about the Son of God. We're speaking about the Savior He sent into the world and to our lives. We are speaking about the living Christ, whose story this is. And not only His story, but ours also. Because in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins we are given a share in his everlasting life it costs us nothing because God's grace is free and we could never buy it or deserve it but it cost him everything as he gave his own son to bear the punishment that was due for our sins and to taste death for everyone that we might live and so here is the, the great doctrine that lies behind that old, old gospel. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Now, when you trace a river, you trace it to its source in the mountains, in the hills, perhaps very far from where you began. And we are going to trace this morning the river of Christ's life, not simply to Bethlehem, but to the hills of God, the everlasting hills, the eternity which he had with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the mystery of the Trinity, the three-in-one, which is God. And the passage speaks of Christ's life before Bethlehem, before the Old Testament prophets, before the worlds were made, before ever there was angel or archangel, when there was only and from eternity God, the triune God. And the text starts there. It says he was in very nature God before he took the very nature of a servant. And what he means by the very nature of God is thoroughgoing, complete Godhead, equality with God, as he goes on to say in the very same verse. He had equality with God in glory before he made himself nothing here on earth. Now Jesus himself speaks about that, that life which he had with the Father. For instance, in his great, in his great prayer, in John chapter 17, before the cross, <coughs> it's sometimes called his high priestly prayer. It's on page 1085, and it's one of the most powerful and moving statements that Jesus ever made. In John chapter 17, he prays, halfway through verse 1, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now isn't it remarkable that he should put those things together? Do you know the only true God? And if you don't, and if you think it's something of a, a cheek that anybody should say they do, let me tell you the secret. It's to know God through Jesus Christ. As you understand who Jesus was and what he did, as you believe his claims and ask him into your life, you begin to know the only true God. Because to know the Son is to know the Father that sent him. And to know Jesus is to know God. Because he is the image of God. And he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In the Bible it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And so Jesus prays that we might know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he continues, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Isn't it magnificent? He knows where he comes from. And he knows where he's going to. Listen to him. Believe him. 
he is worthy of credence and trust. His early followers did, and the writer to the Hebrews, for instance, starts his famous book with similar words in page 1201. Page 1201. He starts off splendidly like this. Have a look at it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, it's the same doctrine. It's the doctrine of Christ's life in the Godhead before he came down on earth. Theologians call it the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back to our passage in Philippians, he's going to tell you what Jesus did with that glory, with that power, with that authority, with that pre-existence that he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He says in Philippians 2.6, Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Now I'm going to explain that fairly closely, and I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek this morning. Okay? And Julian's there with the acetate sheet, which is perhaps going to make it a little easier. He did not consider equality with God a harpagmos. Let's put that up first. Now, that is literally what Paul says. What Paul says is not he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but in the Greek, he did not consider equality with God a harpagmos. If you were reading the Greek, that's what you'd read, okay? Now, you wouldn't know what it meant. Well, you're not on your own, because even the scholars really didn't know what it meant either. And they wondered about this rather rare word. You see, it's so rare, it isn't anywhere in the New Testament, which is written in Greek. It isn't even in the, old, the Greek version of the Old Hebrew, Old Testament. It isn't in that either. And even in secular Greek, in the general books that we've dug up and have copies of, it's, it's not very often there. So what did Paul mean when he wrote that Christ didn't, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a harpagmos? Well now, when, the, old, when the, the translators were researching that, they couldn't think what it meant, but they did know that there was another word which sounded very much the same. And it's a verb called harpazo. So we'll put that up. Now, there's the word harpazo. Doesn't it look very much on the screen like harpagmos? And harpazo is a common enough verb, and you find it quite frequently, and everybody knows what it means. It means to seize something, to snatch something, to grasp something. 
And so the translators said to themselves, ah, well that's probably what harpagmos really means. That Christ didn't consider equality with God something to be seized, something to be grasped. And they translated it like that in front of you. But if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense, does it? It's misleading. Why doesn't it make sense? Well, it doesn't make sense because he had equality with God already, in heaven and in eternity. And you can't grasp something you've got. You can't seize something you already possess, can you? And so, they, they really have given us an inadequate translation. But that wasn't their fault until somebody came along who, a man called Dr. Roy Hoover in 1971, all the way, now just right modern times, 1971, and he trawled Greek literature looking for that old word harpagmos. Now from time to time it was there and people knew it was around and about. But he went one better. Nobody thought of doing this. He saw that Paul had actually written that Jesus, that Christ, the Son, didn't consider something to be a harpagmos. He didn't consider equality with God to be a harpagmos. So Dr. Hoover went all through Greek literature looking for the phrase to consider something a harpagmos. Not just for the word, but the phrase. To count something a harpagmos. And do you know what he found? It started to fit into place. Every time it was used, it had one meaning, one implication. He found it was an idiom used to describe something you had which you could use to your own advantage. It was an idiom, like the sort of phrase we would use if we say about somebody, Oh, he reckoned he was on to a good thing there. Now you've used that phrase, haven't you? He reckoned he was onto a good thing. That means he had something which he could exploit. Got it? Perhaps it would be a bit unfortunate to talk about another idiom we use, having an ace up your sleeve. Because that's from not only the world of cards, but cheating at cards. But we often use it as a surprise, a, a secret resource or power that somebody's got that's going to alter the situation. We say, well, he had an ace up his sleeve, didn't he? something he could exploit to his own advantage. So let's look at the paragraph again, Julian, if you pull the acetate, she open it up. It refers then, the phrase to consider something a harpagmos was an old Greek phrase that people used in the streets to refer to something one possesses which one can exploit to one's own advantage. And Paul uses that old idiom common enough to describe what Jesus Christ the Son of God did but he turns the whole thing he says he didn't consider it a harpagmos the Son of God didn't regard equality with God something to use for his own advantage but for our own advantage now you didn't use an ace up your sleeve for somebody else did you much less your enemy but Jesus did he was on to a good thing, but he didn't do with his good thing what you and I might have done. He didn't regard it as something which would keep him immune from our world of pain and sin and sickness and death. 
Instead, he actually used what he had for his own advantage. He used the power of being God to become man. He used the authority of his majesty to become the servant. Nothing is impossible to God. But none of us expected God to do this kind of impossibility. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a harpagmos. But he used it for our advantage. For Christ, you see, his divine prerogatives did not imply getting, but giving. He didn't regard them as a means of immunity, but as a means of involvement with us in our trouble, and as a means of saving us from our trouble. So the mighty God becomes a mortal man. The infinite deity becomes a frail, vulnerable creature. He who fills the universe knows what it is to become vulnerable among the forces that crush us and grieve us and spoil our lives. Can you absorb that for a moment? He used all the power he had to enter our weakness. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspire together in the whole resources of Godhead to produce not a new universe, but a Bethlehem, a manger, and a crying baby. And before that, all the resources of Godhead to produce a pinpoint fetus in the womb of a young Hebrew woman called Mary. Let me say this to you who are perhaps looking for God in your lives. And you may be reading the books of philosophy, you may be having long involved arguments, you may be piecing together bits and pieces from lots of religions, but let me tell you, you seekers after truth, let me tell you this, there is more of God in the manger than among the stars. God leaves his signature among the stars, but he lays his son in the manger at Bethlehem. And then at Calvary, he gives him up for us all. And so our passage goes on to speak about the incarnation, the embodiment of God. And it's there in verse 7. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or rather a harpagmos, something to be exploited for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Here is the incarnation of the Son of God. He made himself nothing. In the Greek, it's very vivid. It literally means he emptied himself. It's an extreme act. Listen to the words of the great John Calvin. I think it's most moving. Our most merciful Father decreed what was best for us. 
since our iniquities, like a cloud cast between us and him, had completely estranged us from the kingdom of heaven. No man, unless he belonged to God, could serve as the intermediary to restore peace. This situation would surely have been hopeless had not the very majesty of God descended to us, since it was not in our power to ascend to him. Hence it was necessary for the Son of God to become for us Emmanuel, that is, God with us. And it's described in this vivid way, he emptied himself. Now people often misunderstand that at this point. They sometimes think, and I mean Christians and even preachers sometimes, think that it means that he stopped being God in some way and just started to become man. But the mystery is much greater than that. He didn't stop being God when he became man. He continued to be all that he had ever been, and yet he became something else and something more. He continued to be 100% God, but became also 100% man. One person, the Son of God, with two natures, divine and human. On one side he is the mighty God, on another side he is the meekest of men. And so the word he emptied himself is a metaphor, meaning he humbled himself. It doesn't mean that he ceases to be all that he had been. He didn't leave a gap in the Godhead when he came down to earth. He just became something he was not. And that is very wonderful. But you must understand that our Lord Jesus Christ, on the side of his deity, continued to fill the heavens and the earth with his power. Nothing was reduced, nothing was changed, but he added something. Listen to the words of two great historical theologians, Athanasius in the 4th century, in his famous book on the incarnation of the Son of God, puts it like this, At one and the same time, this is the wonder, as man he was living a human life, and as word, as God, he was sustaining the life of the universe. Listen to John Calvin again. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. Now you must take that seriously. It's part of the mystery of the Incarnation. That the same figure who was walking around the Galilee roads, dusty and weary, was the mighty God who at any time could have blasted his enemies and this world to bits. But he is God in weakness, voluntarily for us. He still has the glory of God within him, and in the famous incident of the Transfiguration, you remember that in the Gospels? There was a time when the glory of God shone out from his very face and body. But it was wrapped around most of the time with this cloak, no more than that, this thoroughgoing human nature of weakness and frailty. He hid the, the glory of God under the form of a servant. Now there is mystery there, but there is also something to teach us. 
about humility there and self-control. Augustine once said the only remedy for the pride of man was the humility of God. He was the eternal God living from everlasting in the eternal light. He was the creator of the worlds. The glory of the galaxies was his. Caesar's palace would have been a wretched hovel if compared with his home in heaven. But he didn't come down to Caesar's palace. He came down to the stable at Bethlehem because to him one stable was very much like another. And compared to where he was and had been, Caesar's palace was just another stable. But Jesus came. But there's something more than humility here. There's humiliation. What the, the apostle is saying in verse 7 is not simply that he emptied himself or he made himself nothing, but he beggared himself. Because he didn't just come down at Bethlehem as a baby. He stood in the waters of his baptism at 30 years of age, ready to embark on his three-year public ministry. And he stood in the waters of John the Baptist's baptism, which was a baptism for sinners. It was a baptism not only for creatures, but for sinners. Not only for men and women, but for fallen men and women. It was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And the sinless Son of God stood in that baptism in those waters and allowed himself to be ranked with sinners, not to show that he had sin, but to show that he'd come to befriend sinners and to stand alongside us in our sinfulness and eventually to take upon himself the responsibility for our sins. And this same Son of God went all the way to Calvary with that great load of our sins on his back, burdening his soul, that he might stand in the dock, the convicted criminal who had done no evil of himself, but took personal responsibility for the evil of our world and the wrong of our lives. That's what Calvary is all about. <coughs> And that's what the gospel is all about. Not only the humility of the Son of God, but the humiliation of the Son of God, who becomes the lowest of beings, having been the highest of beings. He becomes the representative sinner before the wrath of God. Let me tell you a story. Those of you that worship here regularly have heard me say it before, but I'm going to tell it to you again. It's something that's taken from one of the books of John White, who did a famous book called The Fight, which lots of you have, and which is uh, a quite splendid book to buy and to read if you're a, a new believer, a young Christian. And Dr. White has this story about himself. He says, as a medical student, I once missed a practical class on venereal disease. Because of this, I had to go to the venereal diseases clinic alone one night at a time when students didn't usually attend. As I entered the building, a male nurse I didn't know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see the doctor, I said. That's what everybody wants. Stands in the line, he replied. But you don't understand. I'm a medical student, I protested. 
Makes no difference. You got it the same way everybody else did. Stand in the line. The male nurse repeated. In the end, says White, I managed to explain to him why I was there. But I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in the line with men who had VD. Yet Jesus stood in the line with us. Jesus shuns shame as he waited to be baptized. And the moral gulf that separated him from us was far greater than that separating me from the men at the clinic. Moreover, my dislike of venereal disease was as nothing compared with Jesus' utter abhorrence of sin. But he crossed the gulf. He joined our ranks. He stood in the line. He embraced us and still remains pure. See, Paul said it all long ago. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That, of course, will be the theme of the second half of the hymn, which I will expound next week. But there is something here that we can apply to God and to ourselves. Don't we learn that God has been in the real world? It's no good feeling sorry for yourself. It's all very well for you, him singing, clap happy Christians, but I live in the real world. Well, congratulations, we don't exactly live in noddy land either. But look here, God lives in the real world too. The sweat and swear world that you live in. He knows it all and he's been here. A God who was born in a stable and grew up in a carpenter's shop isn't out of place in a council house. A Jesus who could say, foxes have holes and the birds of the air their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, can keep company with any refugee from injustice, as he can say to those whose homes are destroyed, whose lives are a synonym for insecurity, who are moving from one place to another finding no rest, I know I've been there. I will be your rest. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will ease you. I will give you rest. I will be your everlasting peace and your eternal home. And a Christ who gave himself up to death of the most cruel, tortuous, torturous sort, despised and rejected, is not immune to suffering or ignorant of it. You and I, you know, you and I can't live and hide behind our hearts our hardships and our self-pity in order to justify our, our resentment of God. He knows what it is to be cursed, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One writer that I've quoted before, Harry Blemeyers, says this, they are perceptive, sharp words, 
a God who knows exactly what it is to eat a meal, to take a walk, to have a toothache or a stomachache, to rejoice at a wedding or to mourn at a funeral, to be indebted to an earthly mother and her husband, to stand trial in a human court, to be flogged, to be cruelly executed. Such a God does not need to apologize to men and women for his immunity, still less for his existence. He isn't immune. He never was. He isn't absent. He's right here and right there. He knows and he cares. As I come to the end of what I have to say about the one who, be, who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, who was found in appearance as a man who humbled himself, who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let me ask you, do you know this Christ? He came to earth, has he come to your home? He came to the world, but has he come to your little world? He came to mankind, but has he come to you in your individual life, or your marriage, or your parenthood, or your singleness, or your career and ambitions? Do you know him, his strange, wonderful power to heal, to turn, to save, to touch you with the light that flows from the everlasting hills, whence he came and where he is glorified, and to where he is taking his people. Do you know Jesus? And you that go to churches, do you really know Jesus? I read some very old books, and I once wrote a, a book about the 17th century Puritans. There were a great generation of preachers in our country. Listen to the words of one of them, old Thomas Jacum. He says, take heed of, of looking no farther than merely a Christ sent. Everyone knows there's a twofold sending of him. The first was Christ's sending to be man. The second is Christ's sending into man and woman. A Christ in our flesh must be accompanied with a Christ in our hearts. There must be not only a Christ sent to us, but also a Christ sent into us, or else he will not profit us. Well, you've heard what I've had to say, but is it profiting you? Or is it a tale that's told and a wonderful dream? But it's no dream. Someone came who said these wonderful words. Someone came who made these remarkable claims. Someone turned people upside down and has been turning millions upside down, or rather right side up, for generations. Do you know him? Do you know the liberation from a lifetime of prejudice and unbelief, or rejection and pain, or failure and sorrow? This is our God, the servant king. This is the Christ that has put a song into our hearts. A song like this song of Philippians 2. And he's the one who's not only changed our destiny, but changes our natures too. 
so that we can sing the song and seek to be like him and to share this joy and these lives he's given to us with other people in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we turn from reading about you. We turn from hearing of you. We turn to look toward you. And in our hearts, if they're in darkness, we ask that you will break through with your light. You said, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, they shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Lord Jesus, be light in my life. Lord Jesus, you stooped so low. When we see death around us, it seems so final. But you who had the power to come from heaven to earth, also have the power to lift earth to heaven. You who had the power to die also had the power to rise again. Victor over sin and death and hell. And so we come and acknowledge you to be the Lord and bow in faith and in repentance and ask that you in your lordly love will reign in our lives and in our ambitions and our work and our careers and in our homes and in our marriages in our youth and in our age in our church and in this world thy kingdom come even so Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to end singing a, a, a modern hymn and a very splendid one, Name of All Majesty. If you could put it up on the acetates, please.